0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Well, as you may recall, two weeks ago we considered how a citizen of God's kingdom should be conducting themselves. And one of the duties that's required of every citizen of God's kingdom is to be pursuing unity, unity within the church. And Paul's continuing to address this issue in Philippians chapter 2. So, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul says this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever." May the Lord write his word upon our hearts this evening. The great 20th century writer C.S. Lewis once made a quite illuminating statement uh, about a particular vice or sin. As I read this statement, try to guess what vice or what sin Lewis is referring to. He says this, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and no fault that causes more misery in nations, families, and churches. To what sin is is Lewis referring to? Lewis is referring to the greatest of all sins, pride. Pride. In our passage this evening, as I previously mentioned, Paul is continuing to address this theme of of church unity, which he's introduced at the end of chapter 1. But church unity, or the flip side, church divisiveness, is only the presenting problem. The real issue is the sin of pride. Or to put it another way, church division is like the tip of the iceberg. And pride is the glacier beneath the water. So what's the connection between pride and church division? Well, Lewis goes on to say that pride is inherently competitive. Pride is inherently competitive. When we consider other vices, this is not necessarily the case. For example, greed. Greed takes satisfaction in having possessions and money. But pride... Pride doesn't take uh, satisfaction in having in its own sake. Pride takes pleasure in having more than the next person. Pride's only satisfied when it has more money possessions or fill in the blank than those around us. Furthermore, other vices such as unchastity or even drunkenness or could continue to probably make a list. A lot of these vices still bring about some sort of community, togetherness. But pride, again, is inherently a vice that breeds enmity, division, conflict because of this competitive nature. It leads to enmity between people, but ultimately leads to enmity before God himself. In fact, this is what led our first parents, Adam and Eve, to sin against God. It was the sin of pride. Thus, we see that pride is toxic in the life of the church. It's a vice that the Philippian church struggled with, and it's a vice that every Christian since struggles with. Even those of us sitting here today struggle with this sin of pride. So what's the solution? How do we overcome this, this sin and achieve the unity which Paul is prescribing for us? Paul, in our passage, answers this question by giving us a manual of sorts on church unity. Just like when you buy something that needs to be assembled, it comes with an instruction manual. In a similar way, Paul here is giving us a sort of instruction manual on how to achieve a unified church. This instruction manual has three chapters to it, which we'll be considering in turn. First, we will be considering the motivation for church unity. Second, the definition of church unity. And third, the action plan for church unity. So again, the motivation for church unity, the definition of church unity, and the action plan uh, for church unity. First, we'll consider the motivation. uh, The motivation for pursuing unity within the church. If you look with me in your Bibles at chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. You'll notice that Paul begins each one of these phrases with this if. If. And it comes across almost like Paul's not quite sure if these blessings are true for the Philippians or true um, by themselves. But this is not what he means. Paul's using a sort of rhetorical technique or device. He's fully confident that these blessings are true and they're true for the Philippians. So we really could translate the if as since. Since we have encouragement in Christ, since there's comfort in his love, since there's participation in the spirit. These things are true. All these statements then are referring to the the comfort, the blessings that we have in Christ because of the gospel. You may ask, well, what is the gospel? Well, according to chapter two, especially what we'll be considering next, uh, next week, the gospel is Christ coming to this earth and considering our interests greater than his own. And because of this, because he came to this earth, because he, he bore the penalty of our sin, we now are the recipients of Christ's encouragement, his comfort, his mercy, his love, and his spirit. All these phrases that Paul's referring to here in verse 1. So Paul's reminding the Philippians of the gospel, all the blessings that come with this gospel message. He's doing this in order to motivate them to pursue this this unity within the church. Now, why does he do this? Why does he use the gospel to motivate obedience? Why does he use the gospel to motivate uh, church unity? Well, he's wanting us to, to recognize and appreciate anew what a great gift it is that we have been adopted into the family of God we have the hope of a new creation, an everlasting inheritance that is guaranteed to us by the Spirit. He wants us to recognize this anew so that we would respond with grateful obedience to a benevolent Father. In the, in the mind of Paul, gratitude and obedience are two sides of the same coin. So if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what does gratitude look like? He would say, obedience. Obedience. What is obedience? You would say gratitude. Gratitude and obedience are two sides of the same coin. So boys and girls, imagine if I were to ask you to make a list of, a wish list. All the things that you you want. All the things or toys that you would ask for. Maybe, you know, a Christmas list in August. Now imagine if someone gave to you the number one thing on that list. What would your reaction be to that person? I would imagine it would be thankfulness, gratitude. So Paul here is wanting us to appreciate what a great gift the gospel is. If we respond with gratitude to earthly gifts, how much more so when this is an eternal gift? Again, boys and girls, this is the very structure of our catechism, Uh, guilt, grace, and gratitude. We need to understand, first and foremost, the grace of the gospel so that we would respond with grateful obedience. This is not a structure that people just made up arbitrarily. This is a structure that comes from the very uh, Bible itself. In fact, we see Paul using this logic in Philippians chapter 2. He's reminding them of the gospel in order for them to pursue obedience. Brothers and sisters, this is another paradox that we see about the Christian faith. The gospel and our secure standing in Christ is what motivates us to to pursue obedience, especially when it's hard. Now, our natural reaction to this would be to think that rather than motivating obedience, the gospel would rather motivate immorality, licentiousness. Being told that you are secure not in what you do, but you are secure in what Christ has done for you, why wouldn't that just lead to rampant, rampant immorality? Well, the Apostle Paul received this very same criticism in Romans 6. As he was explaining in the grace of the gospel, there were those who took his teaching to think, well, let's just sin all the more so that grace may abound. But again, he said, by no means. In fact, this was the same criticism that was posited against the, uh, the Reformation Church from the Roman Catholics. If you truly teach this, this gospel of Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, no one's going to want to obey. It's going to lead to immorality. In fact, I, I grew up in a very Roman Catholic area, and I remember a while back uh, talking to an extended family member who was Um, you know, born and raised Roman Catholic and explaining uh, to them the the message of the gospel. It's the basic Protestant message of the gospel by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And the initial reaction of this person uh, to that message was, why would anybody obey if they believe that? But if the gospel is not motivating our obedience. All of our obedience will be done out of love for ourselves and fear of condemnation. you think about that, that's a very selfish motive. It's for us. It's only when we truly appreciate the gospel and are secure in our standing based on what Christ has done for us that we will truly do good works, pursue unity, and obey for the glory of God and our neighbor's good. Paul is warning us to obey because of, of the gospel that is ours. It's also important to realize that we are united to Christ's historical body. By the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ himself who is seated at the right hand of God. But that necessarily means that we are united to Christ's body here on earth. Those two go together. You can't be united to Christ without being united to his body here on earth. Thus, Paul is saying, if you've received comfort and encouragement from Christ, you should also be seeking to share that comfort and encouragement with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ here on earth. Well, we now need to understand what we are being motivated for. Paul's just given us the motivation we need to know what we're being motivated for. This leads us then to my second point, the definition of church unity. In verse 2, Paul gives us the definition of what a unified church uh, should look like. And in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This unity that Paul is describing looks like having a common confession and a common love. A common confession and a common love. These are the two pillars, as it were, that makes up a unified church. A common confession and a common love. You'll notice that Paul repeats this statement about having a common mindset twice in verse 2. He says, have the same mind. And then at the end, he says, of one mind. And what he's referring to here is that the church should have a common confession. They should be united in their beliefs. And having these common beliefs is really the foundation, the basis of our unity as a people of God. And you may have heard uh, phrases such as, you know, love unites and, and doctrine divides or belonging before believing. There's a certain notion today that having common beliefs is inherently divisive. In Paul's mind, this is the basis of our unity. This is the basis of our unity. This is why we need creeds and confessions. It unites us as the people of God not only here tonight, but throughout the ages. In fact, we considered earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism that Jesus is savior. There's not commonality on that. There's no reason to be here this evening. And if you go through the whole Heidelberg Catechism, each Lord's Day is essential. We need unity on all of these truths that we confess. Binds us together as as a church. In fact, one of the membership vows of our, our, of our federation of churches, the URCNA, is about having this common confession. In particular, this vow says that you know, a potential member uh, affirms that the confessions of our church faithfully summarize the scriptures. So you think the Heidelberg Catechism, it faithfully summarizes the scriptures. So you can see that that membership vow really is reflecting what Paul is saying in verse two, that we are to have a common mindset, a common belief not just among the officers of the church but even among the laity. So it binds us together. Well we not only need to have a common confession but we also need to have a common love. And Paul says uh, in verse two that we are to have the same love. So what is this common love that members of Christ's church are to be displaying. Well, in a lot of ways, this love could be described and articulated in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what we've been reading during our, our law readings. We are called to turn the other cheek. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to pray for those who persecute us. Again, another one of our, our membership vows for the URC Uh, It says that we affirm and we uh, pledge to serve God and live a godly life. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to serve God and live a godly life? It looks like a life of love. Love for God, love for those around us. The definition of church unity consists of these two pillars. Common confession and common love. Well, how do we achieve? How do we build these two pillars, as it were? Well, we need some sort of action plan. This leads us to uh, my third and final point the action plan for church unity. And we see Paul lay out the details then for how we actually get this done in verses 3 and 4. In, the, in these verses, Paul commands us not to be prideful, but rather uh, to be humble. That is, he pro- prohibits a certain vice and promotes a certain virtue. And vices and virtues are habits. You could say uh, dispositions, orientations that incline us to act in a certain way. Our immoral habits are vices. Our moral habits are virtues. And our outward acts then are tied to these virtues and vices. And you see, this is is how Paul describes them. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul realizes that our outward actions are tied to who we are, our vices and virtues. If you're a prideful person, you're going to act in ways that reflect that reality. If you're a humble person, you're going to act in ways that reflect that virtue. Paul first addresses his vice of pride, and he describes pride uh, with, with these two terms, selfish, ambition, and conceit. These are two different aspects of pride. And selfish ambition is referring to an excessive desire for praise and recognition, an excess desire to be great. I mentioned earlier that pride is inherently competitive, and that's sort of what this this aspect of pride is getting at. In fact, this word is the same word that Paul used back in chapter 1, verse 17, when he was in prison and giving us a lesson on suffering. And he was saying that there were some Christians in Rome who were seeking to inflict Paul by preaching the gospel and they were motivated out of selfish ambition. They were seeking to use Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to get ahead of Paul, to further their own ecclesiastical resume as it were. This selfish ambition also made me think of the disciples' dispute in Mark chapter 9. Uh, they're disputing about who among them is the greatest. And of course, Jesus is just a, a, you know, a few feet away overhearing this conversation. And he responds to this dispute among the disciples by saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, a servant of all. And then immediately after this, Jesus receives a child and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And receiving children would not have been a top priority for the disciples at that moment. They were interested in being associated with the high, the powerful, influential of their day. But Jesus is crushing their pride and calling them to be servants of all and to receive even the lowliest of society. The second term that Paul uses is, is conceit. And you really could say vain or empty conceit. What Paul means by this term is that uh, this is when we uh, think of ourselves in a way that does not accord with reality. We think of ourselves in a way that does not accord with reality. Uh, Which again is describing pride. We have an inflated view of who we are. In fact, one definition of humility is a proper recognition of ourself and our limitations. Thus, the opposite is A view of ourselves is not accord with our reality. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons why criticism is oftentimes hard for us to receive, is because it brings us down to reality. So pride, whether it takes the form of the selfish ambition, the sort of sinful competitiveness, or this vain or empty conceit, Both forms kill church unity. In fact, John Calvin says that these are the two most dangerous pests for disturbing the peace of the church. Pride in the church is like termites, slowly eroding the structural integrity of, of a home or a building. So if Paul is saying, don't do this, don't do this, that's going to tear down the pillars of church unity. What are we called to do? Well here Paul in verse 3 says that we are in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. This word that Paul uses for count refers to an intellectual process. Meaning we actually have to take time to think about others. That's the first step to acting in a humble way within the life of the church. Taking time to consider and think about the needs of others. We put time, effort, and thought into our own needs and desires and wants and reflect on just a day and a week. We spend a lot of time doing that. And Paul's saying, you also need to put time, effort, and energy to consider the needs of, of those around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 4 is a helpful balance. Lest we think that, that Paul is describing here a sort of a self-debasement, he says that let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. He's acknowledging that it's, it's good and right and proper for us to consider our own needs, to, um, to meet those needs. But He's saying this shouldn't be our only nor even highest priority. We need to be considering Um, Actually thinking and deliberating about the needs of those around us. The natural question is: how does this humility that Paul is prescribing actually achieve these two pillars: a common confession, a common love? How does it bring about this unified church, according to our definition in point two? Well, first, how does humility relate to our common confession? Again, another one of our membership vows is submitting to the discipline of the church if we should become wayward in doctrine or in life. Thus, when we submit to a common confession, we are acknowledging that we're not autonomous. And this in itself is an act of humility. We all, whether um, one is an officer, whether one is part of the laity, we all alike are held accountable to this common confession. That's an act of humility. Second, humility is is essential to a common love. In fact, uh, the self-sacrificial love that Paul will be describing for us and is describing for us in chapter two is is impossible um, um, without humility. Or the self-sacrificial love on the Sermon on the Mount, I should say, is impossible with the humility that's displayed here in chapter two. Uh, Humility and love go hand in hand. Uh, Love is a self-giving for the good of others. In, In some sense, they're, Um, two sides of the same coin. So here Paul is calling us not to act in ways that are pursuing our own glory or recognition above uh, those around us. Rather, Paul is wanting us to think less often about ourselves and more often about the needs of those around us in our midst. Well, Church of Jesus Christ, Paul is wanting us to stick to the manual, as it were. You know, just as mishaps occur in this life when we uh, go beyond the operating manual, so too Paul is wanting us to know well and stick to his instructions in, in these four verses. And next week, Paul will tell us how we can actually possess and live with this sort of humility that he is calling us to. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we belong to your body here on, here on earth. We recognize that the bonds that bind us together as brothers and sisters in Christ go deeper than kin or country. Remind us often of the marvelous gift we have received in the gospel as we seek to pursue unity, especially uh, when it is hard. We ask these things in the name of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.